Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Film Board, the movie conversation podcast reviewing the latest releases that you've seen and want to talk about. My name is Ocean, and I am the host of the Film Board podcast, and on this episode, we are talking about Dune. But 
planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? Today, I am chatting uh, with a few of my friends to get their thoughts on this movie so we can share them with you. So, uh, welcome, Pete Wright, host of The Next Reel. Hello, Ocean Merv. It's great to see you. Good to see you, too. Welcome, Steve Sarmeno, host of Trailer Rewind. Hey, thrilled to be here tonight. And welcome, Matthew Fox, the host of the Marvel Movie Minute and the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm looking forward to this. Glad to be on. Great, great. Glad to have all you, all you gentlemen on. Um, I uh, wanted to talk real quickly. Uh, just let's start with the first set in the bar of what we thought about this movie. So without diving into the movie at all, uh, let's just go around the room and talk about what did we know about it already? Uh, and what were your expectations you had going in? Uh, I have read the book and listened to the book. I now know that I need to differentiate between the two. I have consumed <laughs> the book multiple times, and I am a fan of the book. I've, I've always thought that the book was uh, was strong. Uh, I'm not, I, I, I haven't been through the entire series uh, recently, but I have fairly recently gone through the, the first book, and I quite like it. Uh, and I also have seen the David Lynch movie, probably twice, I think. And now I am deeply grateful that I don't ever have to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Matthew, what, what, what were your expectations going in? What did you know? Similar to Pete, I had I had seen the movie, The David Lynch, was actually my first experience of it. I saw it when I was maybe 10 years old. So I mostly just remembered interesting spaceships, weird space worms, and that was about it. Uh, I read the book in high school and really loved it. And then rewatched the movie, and I'm actually kind of a fan of the David Lynch movie, as ridiculous and over the top as it is. I think the most interesting thing was I, I love the book, but I I feel like a lot of the parts of the book are don't age terribly well in terms of the kind of dances with wolves idea of the, you know, person who goes and lives with the natives and takes on all their ways and leads them and the great messiah and stuff like that. So I was I was very curious about how that how they were gonna tell that story today. And, and I'm also someone who has a, a religious background as a pastor, so the whole messianic aspect of the story, which I thought the, the David Lynch movie kind of had a very odd take on. So I was, I was really just kind of going in looking at, like, I, I want to see this movie. I want to see how beautiful it is. I want to see all the great actors. But I was also th – those two kind of plot points, I was really especially curious to see how they play out. Uh, Steve? Fan of the book. Read it in middle school prior to the David Lynch movie and then went and saw the David Lynch movie in the theater as huge fanboy of the book. And, you know, at age, whatever, 13, 14, watching that and just thinking, this, what is this? This is interesting, <laughs> loving science fiction, but still like, okay, I guess there are challenges of how to translate complex books into an entertaining film. Uh, so when I heard uh, several years ago that uh, Denis was going to be tackling Dune after uh, Blade Runner 2049 and being just blown away by Arrival and Blade Runner 2049. I had high hopes. 
for this film, knowing that this is a filmmaker that understands he's working in a visual format, that you don't need to depend on dialogue to tell the story, that you can tell story visually. So I was looking forward very much to this film, a very talented filmmaker, one of my favorites right now. And so I have very high expectations for a great subject matter being translated to a visual format by a talented filmmaker. So that's, that's where I walked into this movie. Uh, two days ago. But where was Sting? I mean, come on. <laughs> I will kill him! Right? I would I would like to tell you that I get that reference, but here is me. <laughs> Here's a, so my uh, experience with Dune is, is going to be unique among our, our group in that I haven't read the book. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know anything about Dune outside of what I saw in this film. And so for me, a lot of it was that, you know, I, I was aware of it as a child in terms of, you know, I was aware that the movie came out and I was aware that it happened. I just never watched it. And so my expectations really going in was, you know, I saw the trailer. Trailer looked visually amazing. I've, you know, heard various, you know, there, there is quite the following for Dune. So I was expecting to, you know, see a good science fiction movie of a universe that I was not familiar with. That's, I find that Fascinating. I think that's going to be a really interesting perspective because I I am in many respects I think too spoiled, and so everything I am looking at in Dune, there is at least a little part of me that's comparing it to the the David Lynch, the the Gurney Halleck, and what was Patrick Stewart doing in that movie? And like, there's just so many so many little elements that now I I feel that sense of great relief, and I know that biases me pro this movie. Um, because I, I and I, I don't I don't know. I, I think it's too soon to separate it for me. I had kind of a similar experience, not as much but even comparing it to the past. But because I'm not going to movie theaters as often, I'm not seeing as many trailers. And some point in the last year, I made a decision to just stop watching trailers since the only way to do so was to you know search for them online. And I just love not knowing anything and not having seen a single like shot. I feel like getting to experience the incredible visual beauty of this movie was was really blew me away in a way that I was kind of, kind of felt very vindicated for the like no trailer watching. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we will continue our conversation after this short break. We're on Letterboxd. True Story FM's Family of Film podcasts are all part of the Next Reels HQ page. Letterboxd is a great way to track movies you see, write your own reviews, and be a part of a larger community of film lovers like yourself. Sign up for your own account today. And if you upgrade to pro or patron account, use the discount code THENEXTREEL with no spaces at checkout to save 20%. Uh, if you are an existing pro or patron member, this discount will also work for your renewals. The only constant in life is change, and the film board is no exception. We are working hard to continue bringing you thoughtful and fun conversations about big movies that have just opened in theaters. It does take time and cost money, though, and to that end, we could use your support. Please consider becoming a member of this show and the Next Real Podcast to help us out. You may right now be asking yourself, asking me, what do I get as a member? How about member bonus episodes each month that only you will have access to? Early access to every episode. Join the hosts before each recording of the Film Board episodes for our pre-show chat to discuss the movie and anything else in the world of entertainment. Watch live streams as we record our shows. 
And you can even access those streams from previous episodes anytime you want. Access to additional channels of conversation in our growing Discord community. And now, members get stickers. So let's face it, it just pays to be a member. Head to True Story FM TNR membership to learn more about our membership tiers. The most it will cost you is $5 a month. If you don't want to pay monthly, you can pay in one lump sum, $55 each year. And we're back. I think I'll just uh, start with a quick synopsis of the movie. And I'm going to leave out quite a bit of detail and also show a little bit of uh, my hand in that since my entire, um, my entire experience of doing is this movie, this is the synopsis as a whole as I see it. So it's, first, let's start with the universe building. Uh, the universe that Dune resides in is an empire that uh, is ruled by an emperor. And these and the, the universe has a breakdown of basically feudal houses. Each feudal house seems to run a planet or two um, in the main threats. Of the, and there is a single planet that has an element called spice. And uh, spice is effectively the oil of intergalactic space travel. So there, the story starts around the Harkonnen uh, family, and they have been running the planet with the spice with the spice on it for the past eighty years and ruling it with an iron fist and oppressing the local people. The emperor decides that he wants the Harkonnens out, and he is going to put in the Atreides family as the new rulers of this planet. So he, he, he puts the Atreides family in. The Atreides family is also our main family that we follow initially. They have a son who is learning to become a leader. He may be a regular person. He may be a great leader. He may be the Messiah. He may be a slacker. We don't really know. <laughs> um, and then they, uh, before the, uh, they decide they're going to come and rule the, the people, uh, rule the planet with uh, working with the people and being much more of a genteel, benevolent ruler. And before they're able to set everything up, the emperor changes his mind and tells and partners with the Harkonnen family to come back and completely wipe out and kill the Atreides family. But they can't kill our uh, our slacker messiah kid uh, and his mother. And they, and I'll use this in quotes, escape from the the massacre. And once they escape from the massacre, they go and join the natives. Now. Uh, given that I and given that uh, part of my bias, which I'll start with right off the top, and I'll ask kind of what everyone else thought of this as well, is the first thing that kind of started me where I started kind of accepting the movie and understanding the path that it was going on was in the opening credits, it says Dune colon part one, right? And that already sets me up for, oh, so I am not about to watch a complete story. That shook you, huh? Yes. So in this now, when I recognize I'm not going to watch the complete story, I see, you know, you early, right away, we meet Paul, who is uh, played by Timothy Chalamet, and he is really having dreams and learning, uh, you know, kind of having dreams, and we're just really kind of establishing him as a person and as, as a character and how he seems to be where his father wants him to eventually rule his house, but he's not quite yet, doesn't know if he wants to or not. And so... The early parts of this phase really just seemed to be, you know, at least to me, it felt more by the numbers. And so I was curious about what you all thought of that as well. It was very much like, oh, I have all this power. I'm going to be a great ruler. I can be ruling this family. I don't know if I really want to. Maybe I want to just, you know, sit and chill and hang out, right? And, and that you're just kind of, you're building your reluctant hero trope. 
So was I so let me know, am I alone in that this was kind of the early part of the theme and the trajectory you saw what they're doing with this character, or did you see something different because of your different perspectives and how this uh, in Dune as a whole? For those of us who know where the story is going to go in part two or part two and three or whatever, should we avoid spoilers for that? It's an old book. Like the story is out there. We're not we're not spoiling the story, right? I mean, the story is out there, and we're spoiling I mean, it for I mean, Ocean. You ocean doesn't know right? for me. Like if you guys, if you guys, I mean, that's kind of a that, that is a good point. Yeah. If you started doing that, you'd be spoiling it for me. Yeah, and that's not that's not very nice. No, I and I think we can discuss it within the context of what we've got because I I feel like there is a breakpoint made sense to me. Of, of where they structured it. So it's it's a self-contained, it's not sort of like, oh, to be continued. It's really, this is a, a self-contained part that makes sense. So I think we can speak within the context of this portion of the story, if that makes sense. I, I agree with that. And here's, and here's my thought with this, and let me know what you guys think of it. I kind of like the idea of staying focused inside of this movie, but also then saying, all right, but you can talk about like, okay, you know what's going to go and where it's going to happen. And we can discuss, is it good or is it a, positive is it a positive or a negative to this movie that you feel you need to know that in order to understand what you're watching now yeah that's fair yeah that's like fair. a good point coming in as a newbie to me he was just he was starting to check off boxes right he was the he's the heir heir to a throne of, of, a, of a family he is uh being groomed by green being groomed to become the leader by his father but he doesn't know if he wants it and he may just want to hang out and chill and do something else, or he may, you know, he doesn't seem to know what he wants. And that seems to be setting up, at least in my mind, the, the reluctant hero trope that we're going for here, right? And I was curious if that was also the way you saw that they were setting up as a reluctant hero, or that this was really just the natural progression that you have to go through to the path of becoming the hero. Because it's, it's obvious that he's our, he's our hero. I, I think it's I think it's important to note that it's not like it, it's easy to find the the reluctant hero because he's just young and doesn't know what he wants to do with himself. Right. And, and we have that like, n- no, uh, Paul does not want to become a moisture farmer and work with Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru, <laughs> Right. Like that's he does no not power what he converters. No power converters. He's got to go to Tashi Station and he just sees a whiny kind of a brat. That's not Paul. And that's never been in my assessment of Paul. Paul is stuck between two things that are very different, right? He's He is quite literally pulled in two diametrically oppositional directions. One, his father, to become the heir to the administrative head of this family, Atreides, and take over the business operations and military operations in service of the empire. And the other, his mother, the Bene Gesserit, who is teaching him the way, uh, which is, you know, this uh, pseudo-religious spiritual power that he is able to sort of conjure, and him in between those two forces, it's important to recognize that it's not just, you know, reckless youth and absent-mindedness. It is, it it is, and I think Timothy Chalamet plays it very well, that he is pulled in multiple, in in two very different directions. And he, he legitimately has... It has to make a choice, and that I think is is one of the great you know paths of this particular story. I think that's a really great way to see it, and because I think especially it's not just that he's pulled in these two different ways, but also that there there's a thought that going to Arrakis to Dune might be a way to synthesize the two because he's coming to think, and his mother's hinted at this, but he's not sure that he might actually be 
this uh, savior, this messianic figure that has been prophesied for a long time and that, you know, his mother and her people have been kind of intentionally setting up in a, if you're Babylon 5 fan, a Vorlon kind of a way. (laughs) It's a nice nod. Well done. But, you know, creating a superstition and then having someone fulfill it. And he also knows, and he knows, like, so there's something there about the Fremen. And he also knows that his father wants to, there's kind of like a noblesse oblige attitude his father has, where he wants to be much better to the Fremen and not oppress them the way the Harkonnens is. So, yeah, I think think that's kind of one of the most interesting things in the first part of the movie is seeing him being torn by these two. And then feeling like there could be a way on Arrakis to to bring them together, but also seeing that like that's not going to work. I did not get this what you just described. Do you do you feel in the movie that he knows that they think he's messianic? Yeah, there's a whole there's right? a scene. It, it seemed it seemed like they, they, they there's a scene where she mentions it, but it, it doesn't seem like he fully grasps what that means. Like he's just like, he's just kind of like okay, they think I'm special, but not that that he's going to in essence save or lead the people. Like, do you feel that he actually, in this movie, grasped that? Not till the end. This is terminology that didn't exist when Frank Herbert wrote this, but, I mean, this, and particularly this first part, it's we're dealing with origin story, right? I mean, we've got a choice to be made, and I think that's, you know, ending the story on he's chosen his path, he's taking those steps of, he's taken on that mantle of now he knows what path to take, and we've seen his growing awareness of that from, oh, I have these dreams that sometimes come true to now having visions of things and seeing multiple paths that, that can come before him and not knowing what choices he makes, you know, how those choices he makes, which path they will result in. But he's seeing that he has the ability to foresee potential futures. And so that puts him in a unique position that he's now taking that that on. So it's it's more than just reluctant hero. It's origin story of this character pursuing this path, which I think Pete, you hit right on of, you know, it does he choose between two or does, is he able to find a way to, to merge the two is, is, you know, seeing that the role that his father's playing and trying to balance things there. And then what he takes from his mother, how, how will that play out in the path that he takes moving forward? So that's sort of the, what I see as this character arc for Paul is not just, I'm the I'm the reluctant hero. It's it's not Joseph Campbell. It's it's more than that. I would say. In keeping with this phase in the movie, uh, the other thing that I think that they were building as well was the political part of it, the political intrigue, right? So you're building the the idea of the two houses uh, that they do have a conflict that uh, seems to be known by some of the other characters, uh, not not by Paul, as far as what the history of the of the conflict was between the Harkonnens and the Atreides, uh, but then. The establishment of, you know, the fact that there is this unseen emperor that is able to then bequeath, you know, planets to people, right? So at this point in the movie, especially early on, uh, A, do you feel they did a good job of setting up, you know, what they did, not only visually, but just setting up the grandeur of House Atreides and and what they were being presented and given as far as uh, they're now responsible for the Spice Planet? But also, do you think they were able to uh, convey... In, in a way that really convey out what it meant that they were going to be able to run this planet, right? You know, that you're, you're, you're imbuing them with, in effect, all of the oil in the universe. Yes. 
Yeah, for me, they did. And and I think I, I, one of the things I really like about this, I think, brings in the production design and the fact that, uh, to me, when I'm looking at the Atreides, I'm looking at sort of Renaissance Italy, you know, and and it is uh, a place that uh, where he is he is taught, you know, military, but also art and everything is finely crafted. And there is this sort of Zen atmosphere kind of merged into it as well. You know, they have they have these sort of bonsai inspired, you know, plants around the house. And and uh, and so I, I think there is a real sense of culture, but there is also this sense of royalty. And when his mother says, you're going to have to put on the dress blues, really, because you're going to go, we're going to go have this agreement and this arrangement with the uh, the Imperial Herald. Um, you know, you need to you need to live up to this this sense of stature. I felt there was a weight to that, to, to the culture. And this is this is stuff that is unique, I think, to the the Villeneuve, uh, you know, presentation on screen. I think this is his dynamic that he's able to bring so much of this, the kind of grandeur to uh, to what I had already seen in my head when when reading the book. I don't know. Am I alone, guys? No, you're you're right on. And it this was one of the things that it, when it comes to world building and the combination of cinematography and production design, and I know it's something that's getting thrown around an awful lot in a lot of the reviews is comparison to Lord of the Rings when it comes to creating a a world that feels very much lived in, has its own history. When I'm seeing scenes where we've got, whether it's just in the, I think it's in one of the thopters that they're, you know, on the the display, it, the language is there, that it's it's bears no resemblance to our alphabet at all. It truly feels like a foreign language, an alien language. And it. I thought about, well, that, that happens in Star Wars, but there's something more immersive about it here that I feel like we get that sharp contrast between Caladan and Arrakis in terms of two different planets, two different cultures that have grown and just thrived in their own directions. And that was one of the things that I loved about this movie so much was that sense of place uh, and history that is present in each of the locations that we're at, that they're they're distinct. I feel like it's a lived-in place with its own, you know, myths, history, all of that. And that was, you know, again, I think that's what the film needs to be really successful is that epic grandeur and scale. And part of that comes from the world building. Otherwise, we get the adventures of Paul in the desert of California, right? I mean, that this really felt otherworldly in in all aspects. Yeah, I I, I think I, I mostly agree, although I have one major complaint. I, I definitely do think that, that the world building was so helpful, especially because when you saw the Harkonnen world, sorry, I in my head it's always going to be Harkonnen, yeah, not right. Harkonnen. I'll, I'll try to fix that. Um, as opposed to the Artreides worlds, as you all said, they were so different from each other, and they're both so different from Dune. And so... You know, to me, it really drove home, as I said, one of the things that I was really curious about going into this, the colonized theme, you know, like just yes. both with everything about the Fremen and and there's just so much of the kind of like relationship between a colonizer and the, and the, pe- the native people there that they really drove home. So I thought I thought those dynamics were really nailed well. The one that I thought they really missed, and, and Ocean, I'm curious your thoughts on this, because I, I watched it with two people who also knew nothing of the story. And they got all the stuff about Atreides versus Harkonnen. What they didn't understand at all, and I, th- I think I understand because I don't think the movie explained this well, 
is the political dynamic between those groups and the emperor. Because they were sort of like, well, if the emperor's troops were going to, you know, just help the Harkonnens take it over, why did why did we go through all of this? And I feel like the book, and even David Lynch's movie, but mostly the book, does so much to explain that very complex political and, and Grant, I, I'm always a start. I, I like board meetings on movies. Most people don't. <laughs> uh, I wanted. I want more po- bureaucratic political wrangling. That's not what most people look for. But to me, that's one of my favorite parts of the book is just the very intricate dance that's happening between the Harkonnens and the Emperor and how the Atreides are caught in the middle. And I just thought that point, I thought, really didn't come across. And Maybe we'll see a lot more of it in part two. I don't know. So I'll, I'll answer. I guess I'll start with answering the question and then kind of segue to the other part I was asking about in terms of the politics of the story. A. Um, yes, I, I got it uh, because, you know, I'm a bit of a political junkie. And so uh, I also, you know, like you, I like, I like board meetings because they're going to discuss and tell me what's <laughs> going to ha- happen here, right? And, and I understood that, and this is, at least this is how I understood it. So it, when the movie opens, they talk about how the Har- Harkonnens are, or Harkonnens um, are uh, more powerful and rich because they have all the oil, which is, you know, that they have all the oil. So it makes sense. They become, they've become richer than the emperor. So what the emperor needs to do then is to maintain control. So in order to do that, he still has the ability to say, all right, Harkonnens, you're out. Atreides, you're in. Atreides are becoming powerful as well in their own right. But to keep feudal, or when you're, when you're an emperor over feudal uh, fiefdoms, uh, one of the best ways to stay that way is they have to fight each other and hopefully kill each other. So then to then switch back to the Harkonnens, you're like, okay, I've already been able to establish a relationship with you that I get the, you know, the vig that I want out of what you're producing. If you go back and kill the Atreides, that knocks them off the board. That's good. They have to rebuild their world that keeps them weak. Also, it's going to cost you, Harkonnens, so much to do this, then that is going to bring you down a bit so you can't then challenge my rule. And that's kind of how I read why the emperor was doing that, to go back and forth. Because other, otherwise, if he just switches them, the Harkonnens are still super uh, rich, right? They're still rich and powerful. And then he's running the risk of the Atreides eventually becoming as rich and powerful. So now he has two problems instead of one. So I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's that's kind of how I read how I read it with, at, the, at the end of it all. But I think that early on, and this is kind of what I was curious about how they thought in terms of we're removing so the the visuals. I think we can just open and concede now. The visuals of this movie are great, right? But other than the visuals, is is it actually able to communicate? You know, kind of that part of the story. I think that your question belies part of what I'm looking at. Is that you know you don't understand why there are traders in the Harkonnen hate each other until at all. You never really get that. You understand why the emperor, at least to me, you understand at the end why the emperor is pitting them against each other. But then also, then you don't understand what I think is a one of the things I think about is that the movie kind of goes to two phases. There's the origin story phase of Paul, and then, you know, they have the piece of him when he's, you know, when he first meets the, uh, goodness, they called her a witch, but she's not a witch. The Bene Gesserit, the, the Reverend, Reverend Mother. Mother. The great, thank you. The, yeah, the, the Reverend Mother, when, she, when he meets her, when he meets her, and there's that little, that sequence. But really, then there's going to the planet. And then, uh, then to me, the curious point that I have is like, well, they have opened up with uh, Duke Leto Atreides given you know one of the best father son lines ever of hey if you 
become the great ruler, great. If you don't, you're everything I want you to be my son, right? So now, so now you already have the heartstrings. And so you're, you know, as a, as a, as a fan of that character, you're like, Hey, this is a great guy. And then as a, as a cynic of movies, you're like, oh, well, he's not going to make He's going to die, right? <laughs> he's gonna, you know, uh, you've made me care about him, so he's not going to – he's not seeing the credits, yeah. right? But uh, were they able to then but convey as well – and this is what part of my thought was, is he, is he that great person that you think of in that moment? Or is he uh, just a different side or a different flavor of the same oppressor that the Harkonnen family is going to be? Because even though he's saying he wants to rule with the Freeman – Right, he still wants to rule, right? He still wants to run the planet, and he still is going to then mine the spice. So he's going to do the same things. It might be a nicer hand, but isn't he really just a different flavor of ice cream here? You know, to your point and to Matthews, I think you know the the idea or the the sort of theme of colonization in Frank Herbert's you know uh, book that is communicated here it is hands off the ethical discussion therein like it, we're not going to make a statement here we're going to the, the table stakes is this planet will be ruled because it's got the spice and we need to be there for the spice so the the fact that uh, Leo Atreides goes in and says, you know, I want to rule compassionately so that we can be in an arrangement to, we're still going to end up with the spice. You need to understand the, you know, I, I think that's really important to note that this is that we're seeing just a little piece of a massive galactic, right? Uh, machine. And as big as things are on this screen, uh, it's still a very small piece of the imperial uh, effort, uh, and it ignores a lot of stuff, I think, intentionally. That's the statement that it's making. And I would very much agree with what you're saying, Ocean, uh, um, <clears throat> with both of you, but Ocean, the the way you talked about it, I, to me, it feels like that's the best proof I can imagine that the movie did part of what I wanted it to, in that I think the movie is aware that Duke Leto is not really that, that he's kind of that noblesse oblige, like he thinks he's going to be a better ruler, but he never questions should he be a ruler. I think the the mo this movie is more aware of that question than, as Pete, you were saying, Herbert was not thinking of that question, yes. and that that was a a way of kind of advancing that that I really liked. And I I think the other thing that this movie did very well is it really showed him as kind of a fool. Like, this was just everything about this screamed trap, you know, and he I, I, I feel part of what I, I think, Steve, you were talking about it as kind of a very futile thing. And to me, it was really about this idea of, like, if you go onto a battlefield obsessed with honor and go onto a battlefield with someone with a gun behind his back, you're going to have a lot of honor and you're going to die with honor. It's in such a contrast to his mother that I feel like that's also a really I, I, I'm really curious to see how in part two what Paul learns from what his father did, because I think the movie is really kind of like, yeah, Oscar Isaac, great guy, great dad, kind of an idiot. And, and that is exactly what I thought. Jürgen Pronchno would never have fallen for this, right? Like <laughs> Oscar Isaac fell for it. Jürgen would not have. He no. would have seen it coming. It would have ended the same, but it would have felt different. Right. And in this case, I I almost I like the softer approach of, of Oscar Isaac. I like he's he is a gentler administrator and. Uh, it makes his it, it makes that scene uh, with the Baron that much more impactful, right? I, it makes it mean more to me than any of the sort of emotional sequences that David Lynch tried to 
to pull. What I found interesting, again, I'm going to go back to my Lord of the Rings comparison, because I think one of the things that made that initial trilogy so powerful is coming out on the heels of 9-11, when you've got the world looking at what's being identified as a great force of evil that needs to be squashed, and then you've got a, a fantasy story of the same thing. And I think what's very interesting about the timing of this film is a lot of attention going on at what's happening in the Middle East, what America's role was in that, and looking at are the you know is it, are there parallels there? Are those the reasons why certain choices were made in this story? Because twenty twenty one is very different from nineteen sixty five when Herbert wrote this. We've got we've learned a lot of lessons, right? And there's a lot of lessons we still haven't learned. And so I think when we talk about colonization, all that, there's a different lens that we can look at this story through in terms of that. And I I have to say that it again, not always intentional with an artist, but I think a true artist is often in touch with sort of the zeitgeist and can be a lens that those things shine through. So I can't say it was an intentional aspect of this, but I think the world finds ways to speak through art. And that is one of the things that I'm seeing here because the colonization is very much part of the story. And I think it's very much in the, the foreground of this portrayal of, of the Duke and his decisions of how he's handling his, uh, his fiefdom, I guess, you know, his, his house there. Yes. That. Paul is is an interesting vessel for all of this, right? Because and and I think this is a thing that these adaptations uh, have have made some very different choices. And in the book, Paul is like fifteen years old, right? He's a kid, and I think Timothy Chalamet's uh, approach to this character as a vessel for both the political discussion, right, and then eventually the ethical discussion about what happens as he chooses his path and leaves this movie and saunters into the next one, uh, I, I think becomes more interesting because he is so young. As as we said, Herbert wasn't thinking about some of the big sort of political implications of his choices in the book, but I do think that he was thinking about uh, youth as a vessel for for learning and understanding. And, yes. and Timothy Chalamet channels that i think beautifully i think his uh his approach his face his movement his uh his training his weapons training um you know his early use of the voice uh as he as he finds the way um i i found really uh quite quite touching especially because granted my, my background is in religion i'm a religious professional and so that's kind of always where i lean to but I did think the movie did such a good job of portraying him really struggling with this. Like, Grant, I think I think we're right. We don't know everything. He doesn't know everything about this messianic idea, especially until he gets to the planet. But he's certainly like, he, you know, he says to his mother at one point, you know, what what does it mean to to fulfill uh, to fulfill prophecy if you if you created the prophecy? And I, I to me, one of the most interesting things we have here is. If he is the one to lead the Fremen to freedom, as as maybe people are talking about, well, again, in this colonialist lens, a foreign people creating a prophecy and then fulfilling it a hundred generations later, that's again, I mean, that's another form of colonialism, you know, that, that's, that's again, not self-actualizing those people in any way or them self-actualizing themselves. Right. And it, I really hope in the, in the second movie we get a lot more of that, especially because, and granted, this is something maybe I just don't remember it from the book, I don't know why the Bene Gesserit 
want to free the people of Dune or want them to have this messianic figure. Um, I think the book does go into it. We shouldn't talk about it if, if but but I, I, to me, that was one of those things I was most hungry for in the second movie. And so I, I did really love how they portrayed that and, and that showing that that's part of his cynicism is that I feel like he is this ethical person. He wants to respect these people. And so he doesn't love that they're worshiping him because he thinks they've basically been taught to instead of some actual genuine, like, religious th- religious experience. Right, and because they set that up, the the Reverend Mother, the the uh, she, she actually, he overhears her saying they've already started this on the planet. I think they did uh, a, a, a favorable job of planting seeds in this movie that I, I, I have faith. I have faith that they will pay off in, in the second, because I feel like so much of this angle in the original was, uh, was they moved through it very, very quickly, more thuggishly, yes. uh, where I, I think this movie, there is much more nuance. We get, I think, less of the overall Bene Gesserit uh, uh, appearance in, in this movie, and I think that makes it stronger, especially, you know, the, those sequences that I was looking forward to, like, put your hand in the box. I mean, that was mm-hmm. something I was really was looking forward done. to. It was perfect. Yeah. It was just perfect. And we got that transformation in him. We got him not just being able to take the pain, but we got to see him change in the middle of yes. that experience and stare her down. And I thought that was that was important, that we needed to see that he had that that ability. And to the credit of Rebecca Ferguson, she showed great fear in the whole relationship in a way that I think was uh, was perfect and earned, that there is something that even she is scared of and that we don't get to know right now. And that was a great setup. Great, great, great setup. I need to ask a question here, and this is maybe a bone I have to pick with Herbert, but maybe you understand it on a level I don't. But it, the movie the movie brought the exact same question that the book and Lynch does. If you tell me that I have to endure something terrible, and if I don't, I'm going to die immediately, it is my fear of dying that is causing me to keep my hand in the box. So how am I overcoming fear in that moment? It, it, it always felt like that test is a it's a test of endurance, but it's 100 percent about being afraid of death, which, which it never quite lined up for me. And I'm wondering if you all have some better understanding of it than I do. Well, I don't know about better understanding, but I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I may be different. I've always sort of seen that test as one that, you know, if you don't have the will to to uh, engage your pain, to absorb your pain, to lean into and transfer your pain, then you're going to nod your head to the left and and take the easy way out right like that is that's the that's the sort of sieve of this process and they they need to be able to filter out candidates for the high messiah position (laughs) somehow (laughs) i don't know steve did i miss it i I mean i see the point that you're getting at but i also feel that what we're presented with is not Paul, you know, embracing and relying on the strength of his fear of death, but really being able to rise above emotion and fear. And I'm now at a different level. I've I've been able to step aside from fear altogether, whether fear of this pain or fear of death. And I'm now in a, a different state of transcendence or whatever you may call it to say, because I, I don't see him just like I'm grit. I'm gritting my teeth to get through this because I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I'm just going to keep pushing through. That's not what I'm seeing from him. It's I'm scared. I'm scared. It hurts. And then, okay, I'm now in a trans. I've transcended that, and I I will. 
I can ride this through because I'm no longer in a realm of pain and fear. I'm somewhere else. I, I there's a part of me that thinks that that Herbert wrote this as a joke, that it is like the ultimate gag gift of the threshold guardian. Like there's yeah. no real fight. There's no like boss battle. It's just it's straight up pain. You're just going to hurt. And that that it, it is the the most sort of base. And I think it becomes cinematically a test. It, it becomes a performative test for the actors to be able to sell it well. Yeah. It is the equivalent of, you know, um, uh, the, the Scarlet Witch, you know, actually believing that she is on set and conjuring up red waves. Like, that's the that's the 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 deal here can he sell it and can the the reverend mother sell her test of him and i think they do i think that's the that's the thing for me that i i think they take a joke and they actually make it a serious interpretation of that threshold guardian experience i think matthew you did a better framing job of it than i could do but i feel that i I, i'm more aligned with your camp as well i did not the test part to me did seem more of a, so at first he's just in a bunch of pain and he doesn't want to die. And that's what he's you know obviously afraid of that part. Then after that, it did seem to be more that he was like, well, okay, at this point he's like, well, you're not going to break me. And so therefore I'm going to kind of fight back. But it didn't feel like what I also thought it should be intended to be. I think that to me, it is more of a test of, you know, you can pull your hand out of this box and everything will be fine. Right. And then you can go back to your, you know, you can go back to your mom and you can go back to your bed and all your comfort and everything like that. Or you can keep your hand in this box and demonstrate that you are worthy of becoming the ruler that we want you to be. And but by entering, by including the if you pull your hand out of the box, you're going to die. It then makes it where, you know, there there is the taking your hand out of the box does not provide enough relief unless the pain in the hand from the hand, which they don't. I don't feel that they convey enough. That If the pain in the hand is so bad that you would feel death, there would be a pleasant, sweet relief from it. That's one thing. But it just seems feels like a lot of pain in the hand, which is still better than it cut my whole hand off. It's better than dying, right? But if they said, if you take your hand out, you can go take a nap, right? Or go, you know, go hang out somewhere. Then you're really kind of saying, no, I'm willing to persevere through this thing because I want to ultimately become a greater a greater person or a greater whatever. Yeah, I can I can go to see sort of see that, but there is this other element where he is actually effectively staring her down, right? That he's getting through the pain and through the fear of death and he is actually demonstrating not only can he do both of those things, he can do so while seeing the future, right? He sees the the trees, the spiritual holy trees burn uh on Arrakis and He's able to demonstrate that he is that he is able to outlast and outpower her. And that that to me is the big lesson of the scene. I I think as a test of endurance and a test of perseverance, particularly for someone who he doesn't know this, but maybe the Bene Gesserit know is being prepared to go off into this completely inhospitable desert environment where endurance and perseverance and refusal to die is going to be very important. It's a great test of that. And then I also love the mantra of, you know, there is no fear, it, it, Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the mind killer, yeah. Yeah, fear is the mind killer, et cetera. I just think, yeah, to me, that they're, they're, they're kind of two different lessons that connect rather than being like, this is the moment you conquer fear. But And, and Ocean, I think it is interesting that, like, that, 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 that you're more on that side because that may also be that, like, there's a lot of stuff in the book that I'm not remembering as much that, that Pete and Steve is helping to kind of color your experience that I don't think the movie is sold. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So 
uh, coming back for a minute to the theme of uh, Duke Leto, which who I, who I really feel that in this movie, even though I feel that we're meant to follow Paul and what he's going through in his experiences, that the, the good the good half of this movie is really the Duke Leto story, right? And so. In insofar as his idea of colonization, right, where he's going to become this benevolent ruler and he comes down and he rules and he's going to come rule these people. And he starts to try to build his relationships and partnerships with them because he wants sand power, right, you know, and all that's going on. The the fact that he is not only, you know, not only does the emperor change his mind to help, you know, help overthrow him, but he is betrayed from within. Makes me then wonder, does, do you think that the, do you think it would have worked, right? Because he has this, in effect, I guess effectively manservant, right? That is this doctor, this uh, the Chinese doctor, uh, who's been with his family for an untold number of years, right? And and has been with them and everything together, but just, you know, immediately flipped on him because, he, you know, because his wife was kidnapped, right? And just totally said, you know, so he said, yes, fine, he, I'll kill Duke Leto and all his family. And so then it makes me then wonder then, is he delusional about his own, uh, you know, not only powers and abilities, but what, how he is received and perceived, if he is betrayed from within, would it have even, like, had he been allowed to thrive on Dune, would it have even worked? Like, what is this movie, does the movie make you feel that, that his way would have worked and been better? Oh, okay. In terms of his plans. Yes, in terms of his plans, right. In terms of his plans and what he is trying to do, because he is not trying to subjugate with an iron fist. He's trying to subjugate with an open hand. Right. right and and but but as you see moving forward he is his downfall his really a lot of his downfall isn't external yes there's big troops and war you know the, the 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 big factions that come and there's that fight yes but also a lot of it is internal right he's sabotaged from the beginning in various ways uh not only with the people that are hidden it that aren't found but then also that with the the doctor that change, turns on him at, at the at the end right so then it makes you then question so i'm wondering what how did how did you perceive this in the movie that that is this a thing of where it, it was an it was an inevitable ending or that this is de- displaying a tragedy of that, hey, this would have been a better way for these, this planet, this people, this industry, if only been given a chance to live. That's really hard for me to say because of just recently reading the book and there's significant parts about duplicity and uh, betrayal that uh, that are missing. We, I talked with some friends about and it's like, okay, is this the, you know, Tom Bombadil section of, you know, story that, that's not there that the fans want to see but you you can't have because it's going to impact pacing it's it's going to add a whole lot of stuff to it so it's hard for me to answer that because i i'm looking at it from a larger perspective of this this betrayal there is so in the book there's so much more to the betrayal that it's it's not just like yeah there's this betrayal and so i i don't know how to answer that question if 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 it requires this exter- if it requires this external knowledge to answer that type of a question, do you feel that the movie doesn't convey anything with this then? Because the, the, I think the question is there, right? But do you, if you, do you feel that the movie does not provide enough to have an opinion on it? I feel like my answer won't satisfy you because it's going to be depending on other information that I would want to bring to that discussion. But I think it's a I think it's a valid question to ask in terms of what are we really seeing with with the Duke's plan and, you know, is, cause it gets to the point of, is he a competent leader or is he really outmatched in this? Is he trying to take on something that is, that is not going to work because as, you know, as, as uh, Duncan reports, like 
yeah, they've they've miscalculated the numbers. There's you know hundreds of thousands of Fremen, not fifty thousand. So there is this much larger force there that uh, they even anticipated. So is this something that is even a feasible plan? Of oh, it's not just bringing a small force, you know, an ally. But of course, he then sees that as his true desert power. But thinking about okay, it's not several thousand or tens of thousands. It's a nation's worth of people. Is his plan going to really work? And this is where I'll put a pin in this. I'll come back to it later because I, I want to talk about whose story this is set up as from the beginning. But, you know, the the power play between the Fremen and, and the Duke, I think, would be an interesting thing to, to ponder. But it's just really outside the scope of the the story, because unfortunately, yeah, I think Duke is that disposable character that, that serves his plot function and that there's not much more to him. I mean, even reading the book, I feel like he's not as developed as many of the other characters with, with that. We don't get a lot of depth and insight into him. I mean, I remember when I read the cast list, I was somewhat surprised that someone with as big a name as Oscar Isaac was cast in that role it's, because yeah. I was thinking, but he dies in like 50 pages into the book, yeah. you know, maybe more than that. But, you know, both he, and, and with Jason Momoa as Duncan and things like yeah. that. And I, I did like, I'm sorry, as Idaho. And I did like that they gave him a much expanded role. But, um, Steve, I kind of, I have an inkling of what you're getting at, but because my memory of the book is not as good, I, I think, oh, shit, maybe I can try to answer your question based just on what I saw in the movie. Uh, and maybe this is being influenced by my memory of the book, or maybe I'm remembering totally wrong. I don't know. I thought there were two really key things that that I got out of the movie about why this thing was never going to work. One of them is the great scene where the Duke is meeting the leader of one of these, like, clans of Fremen. And, you know, he thinks he's being, like, totally generous and wonderful and look how benevolent a ruler I'm going to be. <clears throat> and the guy comes back with, well, fine, but you cannot come into the desert. And, and that's where it starts to really form a – there's a tension there, especially because what they're talking about is you cannot come into the desert, i.e. you cannot come and take the resource. That's the whole point you're here. So I think that's one part of it. But the other thing I think that I, I did get out of the movie, even though I wanted a lot more of this, is it feels to me like the Duke is this incredibly naive character, you know, that he – he thinks the judge of the change is going to play by the rules. He thinks the em he doesn't he's the person who's trying to play the game without realizing that the game is fixed. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that that again, I might the books might be letting me kind of influence that, but I did think that so I, I feel like even if the doctor hadn't been there, it might have been a much slower, you know, demise. Um, but if nothing else, that scene with where they rescue the the people in the carrier instead of and lose all the spice. To me, that 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 kind of goes again to the kind of the problem of the benevolent ruler is he's realizing the only way to actually make all this money from this planet is to be heartless and let the worms eat your people sometimes because you just got to get as much of the spice as possible. He wants to save the people, not the spice. And I think the point is that that's not going to work. You can't you can't you can't square that circle. Yeah, I, I guess that's a I think that's a really good point. I think that's a really good point. I. I hear a butt coming. Well, there was there was a butt. I think it was related to to Leto 
Leto Atreides' use of ceremonial bagpipes to introduce his oh. welcome to the planet. <laughs> and yeah. that, was, that was maybe the most, uh, the most uh, telling sort of symbol to me. It's like, man, they might as well be playing your funeral dirge. Like, you, yeah. uh, it, it, it's mm-hmm. too solemn right now. You just introduce bagpipes. It's already over, and the game hasn't <laughs> even started. I, I think there is something... I, I want to go back to this idea, though, that he, you know, that, that he demonstrated some sort of weakness by choosing people over profits in that sequence, saving the 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 manufacturing ship from the worm, uh, saving the people from the worm, because I, I, I struggle with that a little bit. I, I think you're right, practically, and maybe from the perspective of the book, that would have been a ridiculous sign of weakness because that is also the the ideological worldview of the book that we're we're demonstrating these things in the movie um Oscar Isaac I think and his his portrayal of of the duke is going for something different and new and I found myself struggling a little bit to adjust to that because to me my memory of it is they are just the colonizers and he's going in with this soft touch and that's news to me. Like, I I don't right. feel like he's necessarily this character. I never thought he was a character I could learn from. I'm showing up as a, as a reader to learn from Paul's journey, right? I'm not mm-hmm. learning right. from the fathers. The fathers are are poor lessons of the past. And yes. and so that's a, that's a thing I'm struggling with. In the movie, does it work in the movie to give us the soft touch of of Oscar Isaac's Leto Atreides, and to me it does, but I absolutely see how how it, it, it doesn't quite feel strong enough. Just to clarify that, I don't think that it's weakness. I think that it's the it's a kind of like, can I can I be a benevolent ruler? Yeah, right. And, right. Then, and he's coming to a system where the whole system has been built on, like oppression is the lifeblood of this system. Yeah. And so it's not weakness. It's that he's kind of like, can there be happy oppression? And right. and, and the answer is that when, there isn't. When the answer is even the oppressed won't let you fit into that system, right? Like no one wants you to be that, that guy. What you guys are describing is about the, let's uh, talk for a second about choosing the people over the, over the equipment. I guess I, I viewed it differently. I didn't think of it as like, you know, is this, the opinion of it being either a sign of weakness or just to make the wrong practical choice, partly colored by the exterior knowledge that you have of the books, because I looked at it as a practical decision to save the people over the equipment because I was like, because my thought is I can make more equipment. I but can't it's not the equipment, it's the, it's, it's, it's the spice. It's the value spice of the spice that is it. lost. Well, but yeah. he can't save the spice. The worm is going to eat that, right? But he, can, he, can't, save, he can't save him. So the whole thing was get them out or lose the people and the equipment. Like he can't save it, right? So, so, so I don't, I don't view that as his choice. His choice is to save the people or let them die. Yeah, right. And I think that's the that's the 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 conundrum here because even if he let the people die, he's going to lose the spice. And so he's trying to be the the ruler that actually does have a heart and can save the people. The, the key line of dialogue in that moment is because it is about, it, it's, it's, uh, when he says, damn the spice. Th- yes. When he says, damn, damn the, the spice. spice. And, and, and we've got that reaction shot, uh, from Dr. Which again, let's talk about casting and, and switching gender on a, on a yeah, Dr. Important Le- character. Le- 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 Kynes? Kynes. Yes. And, and her reaction to that, 
was, you know, to me as as somebody that is tied to the land, that is very much, you know, connected to the the people of the land and seeing that here is a leader who doesn't care about the spice. And so I, I think that to me, that was the the pivot of the scene, not so much in that he was actually making a choice, but for him to express his values of, I don't care about the money that's being lost. These people are more important. And that speaks to his character. And for me, that's really what it was about. And I think that's sort of what we're delving into is a man who's going to say, I'm going to value these people because I'm here for the people and to do right. this. And I, versus the prophets, although he knows what he needs to do, he knows he's got to be that benevolent leader and not just, I'm going to extract every ounce of work out of people and work them to death. People are important. I am this leader. And that I think that's where we're getting that aspect of, you know, the benevolent leader. It's not that he actually had an opportunity to choose one or the other. Well, and one thing I know, I remember that it is a much bigger theme in the book that I think is a little bit played out here in the movie, but especially the book, I think, kind of influences it, is the idea that not only is he wanting to save the people, he's willing to put himself and his son at personal yes. risk to do yes. so. Yes. And I think in the in the book, my memory is that that's the thing that really impresses uh, the judge. And here, the, I, I guess maybe, maybe I'm kind of like, you know, uh, headcanoning it, that it felt to me like that it was especially with him saying damn the spice that right. that's more the dynamic that it created but yeah either way it's a it's a, it's a great scene i think and it does say yeah. so much about him and what his vision would have been so can i come back to the point i wanted to touch on of when we talk about the structure of this this is the first time i've ever seen a movie start before the studio logo shows up because we get a line of dialogue from the movie and then we get the Warner Brothers. And I yeah. thought, oh, this is a movie that's just jumping in and we'll get every all the titles and stuff at the end. But no, we get that that whole mysterious line, uh, dreams are from the deep. And then we get, you know, Warner Brothers, all that. And then this whole story is framed. This isn't Paul's story. This isn't the Duke's story. This is the story of the, the Fremen because we've got Chani telling it. She's got the first... You know, once we get it past titles, she's got the first line. She's got the final line in the movie. She bookends this movie. So this is her perspective on this story, which I think is a very interesting choice. We don't just jump in with like Paul and the Gamjabar and all that like the book does. We're, we get here's what's going on with my people and our land. And this is what's happening to us. And I think we get that very strong statement about, you know, colonization and all that. And to me, it set a very different tone to this story, which I think is an attempt to get past the, oh, this is the story of the great white savior come to, to rescue these people. This is our people's story and what these oppressors, you know, and, and our interactions with them, which I think is a very interesting choice to make in how this story is framed. I think it's a really good point. I, uh, my partner and I were kind of joking that Zendaya made the easiest paycheck that someone's made in a while because she's <laughs> billed as one of the main stars in the movie and has five lines of dialogue, yeah. I think, total. Yeah. But the lines of dialogue she has are incredibly significant in terms of framing it. And and I, I think I don't think this is a spoil to, to set up that also very clearly setting up as the love interest for for Paul. Right. Um, and and but also in a really like I kind of like the way that there's sort of an exotification of her in a way that is often very uncomfortable. But I feel like, you know, with him just sort of like seeing her beauty, but never actually hearing her words until the very end. But this time I thought that was kind of the point. It was kind of showing like he has this vision of like 
the beautiful girl he's been dreaming of, of the native girl who will teach him the ways of the land. But now he has to actually meet the real person and experience that conflict, which is like, yeah, that's actually a really great way to take what is kind of a problematic story and really change change it in such a subtle but powerful way. Yeah, I think so too. And that's something that that I know um, Villeneuve was saying is uh, very important to him, that the second movie be really Shawnee's story, right? That it is, it's it's effectively, we need to remember that Shawnee in the original movie was 1980s Sean Young. Like, it is the story <laughs> of her. And, yes. uh, and so, uh, and so we're, it, it will be, um, it, it will be her, her experience in the second half of the movie with, with Paul. And, and, you know, that'll give us some of those big hero moments that I, I don't know about you, but I was also waiting to ride the worm and I only got a little bit of the ride the worm yes. that they he's yes. really saving that. And, and I think that was a that's such a calculated risk because it's it is one of those like big effects moments that I, I think could could make a, a, a decision about a second movie. And he held it for, uh, you know, a second movie. And I think it's right? worth pointing out, the second movie has not been greenlit. It has yet. not. That's correct. You don't, I this thought, isn't a, I like... thought they, I thought I'd read that they're, they haven't, they haven't formally committed to it yet because I thought, um, yeah, I thought there was something about, studio says, yes, they're moving forward. I thought um, Josh Brolin said that they've, they're set for certain sh- start of shooting and all of that in 2022. So, Again, it's 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 rumor. I I'm expecting formal announcement. You know, probably, you know, later this week. Well, as of the, as of this recording, they have not yet announced that they're going to have a full, another movie. So I, I guess maybe at this point, I want to kind of start to segue to the towards the end. So you have the betrayal, and then that you know happens. It's just a betrayal, right? So I don't know that there's really much of anything to to say about that beyond that it seems to be to me, and this is how I perceived it. And so maybe you saw something that I didn't, right? That. The Harkonnens come back. They betray. They wipe every, everybody out. The they wipe everybody out. You know the Baron of Vladimir Harkonnen lives from his poison attack, and 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 they just kind which of was re- awesome. Like I have to admit that sequence I I found exhilarating. Like in a movie that slow plays a lot of its like of the hardcore kind of uh, action stuff. I really liked the the nighttime sneaking around poison bug thing. I'm talking about the the bites in the when uh, Duke Leto bites in the pill, breathes him, and then he climbs up. Yeah, leading up to that when they when they take over when they take over the the compound, right? At okay, night when yes, everybody's yes. asleep, I thought that was yes. an exhilarating sequence. I thought that was really powerful. Yes, yes. No, it was it was it definitely was an exhilarating action sequence, but as far as the 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 story and the theme of what the uh, various things that these mo- that the movie's communicating, it's okay, we've we've established that this is going to happen. We've uh, started establishing a little bit of how the the emperor's playing both sides. He's joined in. You know the um, the reverend mother has. You know he, she's filled in some of the exposition for us. Let us know that that it is it is a broker deal. The betrayal happens, and then the uh, then Paul and his mother hide away a bit before they set and join join with the people, right? join with the natives. And the the I think to me the only really other pivot point of the movie at all that I saw was that fight scene that he has, that Paul has uh, with uh, Jamis, 
or Jameis, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name correctly, where he'd never killed a man before. And so you're seeing a couple of firsts. I mean, there is the first with the hand in the box of him having the first time to have to either deal with uh, pain, you know, deal with pain at a, at a very high level and with, and with and endure and, and, you know, or die. And then also in this scenario where it becomes clear early on, he's a much better fighter and he could kill this guy at any point. But you could see that he is struggling mentally in order to do so. Right. And that and that then he has to then to get out of this fight or to to end it, he has to actually, you know, kill Jameis. And so and that's it's interesting to the juxtaposition of in the movie, it's portrayed as as if you know, as if this is a good thing on his journey to help him become the person he wants to be. But or is it then or do you feel it's more of a okay, well, you're also now taking away some of what he was. Right, because this wasn't his agency trying to choose that he was forced in the situation, and he wanted to find a way to not kill, right? But he had to do it in order to, you know, end this fight. So, is it a net positive? Is it a net negative? Right? Because I, I, I kind of viewed it as, at least, it, it hit me, which I, I recognize I might be the minority here. I, I, it hit me more as, oh, you're now stripping away some of what made him great, not adding to it just because he was able to best someone in a fight that he was so clearly better than and could have defeated without killing so he's he's the bully he's the i'm sorry right. this is the this is um the karate kid but danny uh russo is the bad guy <laughs> well I, to me actually it's more uh something from game of thrones i think i don't think the scene ever happens in this show but in the books there's talk about you know the kid who has been trained by the experts yep. from birth to be a great fighter beating up a kid in the town you know and i think that that to that extent, I, I definitely did not like that scene, and I, I'll. Th this will be something I'll talk about more later. I, I thought everything after the, the betrayal and battle scene was pretty bad, to be honest. I just did not. I was falling asleep for a lot of it. Um, and to me, I, I think first of all, we say this is the scene where he first kills someone. He had just helped his mother kill a couple of Harkonnen guards. And he might not have, like, literally been the one to do the death blow, but he was certainly involved in their deaths. And, and so for me, that it didn't land. I feel like that scene should have been one of the early conflicts of the second movie. Because to me, it is so much of, like, if this movie ends with him joining the Fremen, that is really about him taking his next step into becoming a Fremen. And I feel like if it given some time for him to really be wrestling with that, and then that fight comes, in part because someone's like, I don't believe you're one of us, to me it would have had much more effect. Here it just felt like they want to give us a fight scene to end the movie. And I, I was I was honestly very disappointed by it. I think I agree with that in terms of placement. I, I wasn't disappointed with the fight itself. I do think that there is some I'm I'm coming at it with a little bit of, of uh bias because my and maybe my sense memory is off, but there is much more of a theme of like the fight of honor. Like he can defend himself and that can be, uh, uh, he can kill somebody in the, in an act of defense. If somebody is attacking the compound, that's one thing. But to do this, like the Fremen sort of ceremonial fight is different. Like there is something we're supposed to feel substantively different about that. And the fact that you didn't connect with that tells me that the movie didn't communicate that well enough and that I was writing some some head stuff in there to fill in some of the blanks, potentially. You don't think so? No, I don't 
think so. And it, I, well, I, I may be wrong, and this is where I may have to go back, you know, in streaming and, and look at some stuff because there are so many. Paul's got so many visions and he talks about, okay, there's somebody gives him a knife and he's got all these premonitions or future visions, whatever we're calling them about this. And then just prior to this fight, we see some of these visions. And I, I, again, I don't know casting and all that, but I, there's a, there's a moment where he sees someone, I believe it's Jamis who says to him, I will teach you our ways as if he's a mentor. There's a possible future where his enemy is actually his mentor. Now he's put in a position where I've seen this person as possibly my teacher and I'm not now whatever choice was made, I have to kill him. And for me, that played into, it's not just a fight for fight's sake. It is getting to Pete of this ceremonial, you know, it's, it's the coming of age moment. And for me, it was the, the way to end this because he's now crossed the threshold. And so now he takes his first steps, and that's where we get to in the second story of he's he's grown from the kid he was to the man he will become, and he's made that pivot. Uh, he's leaving one life behind and is now first steps into the next. And for me, that is that sets me the tone of the journey we're about to take rather than waiting to know what's going. Now I know Paul has made that choice. He's embraced this identity as, you know, this is the road I need to take. Well, and it's right before that, Steve, to your point specifically, where he see has that vision of Jamis killing him, right? Yeah, and, oh, yes, and that's that the, as well. That's yes. the huge thing that Paul Atreides must die to rise again. And right. this is Paul Atreides saying, I don't trust you, fate. I'm gonna go right. ahead and become this other thing. I'm gonna take an active role in my yeah. in my future. I'm not going to trust the visions as a guide. I am the guide. And and I think that's a that is an important sequence for me as a transition to the next movie. And that's why I'm on the fence about this idea of of this becoming the introductory sequence of the second movie uh versus, you know, the the way to end this one. I was I was longing for at the end of the movie I was longing for more movie and that is a that is my experience generally with you know I don't I don't really care for the part 1 part 2 I want to see it like now I think that may perfectly explain how we saw it differently. And it goes back to something, Steve, you said, where you said that what you love is that this movie told so much of it visually instead of using dialogue. Because to me, what that tells me is it, it kind of actually helps me with my feelings about this movie. Because what it says is this is a very well-made movie that's not for me. Because I hated that. Yeah. Oh, like, I thought, I thought I the that. scenery was beautiful. Yeah. But I was literally like on my couch having to poke myself to stay awake in that last hour because there's just so many scenes of him looking out into the sunset and out over the desert. There's a lot of with desert. nothing <laughs> happening. And I just kept thinking this is space that could have been used for politics. This is space that could have been used for anything except these interminable shots. More boardroom. Uh, more boardroom. Uh, boardroom. Boardroom. Well, more battles. Or more any, and I, I think that's... Yeah. I, I was so bored by the time we got to that fight scene that that probably also colored it a lot for me. That I was just like... I, we'd gotten to so many points where I thought the movie was going to end and then it didn't that I was just like, come on, stop. At least three times at that. Um, and I think that... Uh, why don't we start segueing into that? Because I think that that's a good segue into... Uh, also part of what I had with it and, 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 and Pete and Steve, you can be the counterpoint um, in that it felt like Star Trek one. 
And what I meant by that is that like in Star Trek one, you have this television show that people love and it has a fan following and everything's great, but it's 1960s technology. So it doesn't look as great. But then the first movie comes out and the enterprise looks big and real. And so you have these long swooping things where we're looking at a ship for five minutes. Right. And so, and I think that's a lot of what this was in that they, there is a good following. There is a fan service. It was made, 30 years ago, so the technology wasn't there to make it look as realistic and as beautiful. And that, look, this movie was beautiful, you know, in terms of how it looked and how things look very realistic and all that. You just couldn't do that in 1984, what they did visually with it. But then, but by in essence, falling in love with the ability to do that, you would have these big, long, sweeping shots. And so I think I found myself entertained, interested in, I want to know what's going to happen next. I found this weird, the last 45 minutes or so of, of the movie of where I was in this weird space of, well, this has been a good setup for the movie that I think I want to see, but what did I get out of what I just saw, right? Because I, and then especially the last 45 minutes, I'm kind of like, well, I know that, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm almost actively turning my brain off because I know any questions I have aren't getting answered, right? Because this movie isn't, the complete story of really anything except for, and this is part of why I think it's more important, it's Duke Leto's story. His story is complete, right? I learned something about him as a person. I've seen some of the stuff he's gone through. He has, a, I mean, he has an ending, not necessarily the one I wanted, but hey, it was an ending, right? You, you know, in terms of like, I, I kind of, I, I'd like to have him, for him to have lived and kind of explored that character more. But that was the only thing that was a complete story. Everything else was showing me, hey, this is all this really cool stuff for what's coming later. Like, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm curious, and obviously, did you have, you know, the, the knowledge of the story and where it goes obviously creates a different experience, but then looking at this movie on its own, is it just then, hey, this was a great movie that I really enjoyed what they were doing, or, oh, well, they did a wonderful job about the stuff that's unimportant at the beginning until we get to the real story later. I don't know that I have a, a hard counterpoint to that, uh, apart from echoing Matthew and saying that I just don't think that part is for you, right? Like, there is there is so much of the movie that I just enjoyed, um, you know, I enjoyed them uh, in the sand and the, the mother-son experience and them, you know, all the little uh, techniques and, and the still suit exploration and all of that stuff I thought was... There was value in that narratively to me to build this character, this this kid and watch him grow over, um, you know, over time as he's walking across the desert and, and they're creating this real sense of fear about these, you know these these worms that are super threatening uh and we get that one hero moment where the worm comes out and looks at him and we see that connection that will pay off later um and and so i think probably two points one i think the second movie is going to be the movie that you that you really connect with probably um but two i did deeply enjoy the sort of raw state of filmmaking here i thought it was uh, uh, joyous and beautiful and massive. And that was enough for me uh, to keep me engaged in the little things that were happening, the little technologies and the the accommodations of the sand and and all of that. I, I found that quite, quite good. I wasn't bored. I wasn't poking myself. I, I will say it, if, if this was 
the only film of, of Denny's that I'd seen, I could say, oh yeah, he's leveraging knowledge of the novel and he's counting on people to fill that in. And I could even say that to a certain extent with Blade Runner 2049. Oh, the fans know the story, they fill that in. But then I get to Arrival. And yeah. that is, you know, that is, you don't have to have read the the short story. You you walk in that and it is another film that embraces the silences and and shows more than it tells and is able to accomplish fantastic storytelling and filmmaking and i think that's just his skill set and i will say again maybe not the filmmaker for you matthew i'm a huge terrence malick film i assume you would be completely snoozed by his <laughs> movies tree of life is my number one movie pete shut up <laughs> you've already been, you've already you've, you've already had your say about that so I, I i look at these moments of you know what are the things that stand out when the baron rises up yeah. and floats with this huge trailing you know whatever his cloak or whatever behind him that demonstrates his power you know, that shows what he is. We don't have to have people saying, oh, the Baron is a very powerful guy and he's very intimidating. We see that. And and to me, that is the strength of the movie in so many of those moments. And I think it's why Timothy Chalamet shines, because he doesn't have to count on his dialogue doing a lot of the lifting. It's how he's presenting it. The physicality of his performance is is what is his strength not whether or not he can deliver a line with the emotion that we expect from him, and which I think is why he's he's perfect for this film. It is not about the dialogue. It's not about the plot. It is about the emotions, the moods, the tones. For me, that is the strength of this movie. Those are the moments that I revel in because I can just sit and let these visuals and the, we haven't even talked about the score of just, oh my gosh, it, it's yeah. amazing. And it just, those are the emotional moments. That's where I know what I'm feeling, not because some actor you gave this great Oscar worthy performance to deliver a line. It's the visuals of what is the tragedy of, of Ucleto? It's the fact that he's sprawled out nude in this chair in the, in the conference room or the boardroom or whatever, Matthew, there's your boardroom scene, right? Okay. We get that there. <laughs> and you know how that represents classical painting in so many ways that it's carrying all of that weight, that there's tragedy there, not because of anything he says, but in everything that happens and we're shown. And that's, that's where I would say, yeah, I can't convince you of those things. Uh, and I can say, yeah, that's it's it's may not be for you in those in those moments, and it it it, it saddens my heart. And I, I want to bring you over to this side to say you can enjoy this. You can just let it wash over you. You you need to turn off the the brain. It's it's one of the dichotomies I sort of think about in this movie of the enlightenment mindset of you know the the Benny Gesserit, which is we can science our way through this. We can manip manipulate stuff through enough with then also balance with the supernatural of there are things that you can't explain. There are things that you are going to experience. It's sort of the path that Paul takes of I'm going to embrace the unknown and just. Just let that experience happen. It's not going to be something you can explain. You can't logic your way through. You, it's not going to answer your questions, but how does it make you feel deep down? I think that's a really good point. And I will say, I would have never guessed that he did Arrival because Arrival, until the last five minutes, was one of my favorite movies ever. I hate the ending. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but I, I don't like time travel. Um, but I think for me, there's two big differences. One is that Arrival is a full and complete story in and of itself. And so I'm not left wondering what's the rest of the story. And also that Arrival was something I went into completely blank, not knowing any of it, unlike Dune, where I'd seen it before. And so I think it, it, it I think you're right. Part of it is just that I'm just not a visual film person in quite the same way others are. Though I did, I did think a lot of it was beautiful. I thought the score was amazing. 
but I, th- I felt like that th- those twin things of that I knew what the story could be and how much was being left on the cutting room floor and that we weren't even going to get to the end of the damn thing. And that it just the time, like, I think, I think if it had ended soon after the battle, I would have thought this was one of the best movies I've ever seen in an awful long time. It was just that last 45 minutes where it felt like the, be- because we were doing, I think kind of what you were saying, uh, Ocean, like, it felt like nothing, nothing matters in those last 45 minutes because we know we're not going to get any resolution. Um, so, yeah, it's just, just different ways of seeing the movie. I think it's all, it, it makes me really happy to understand, because I walked out of it thinking, this movie's going to totally bomb. It's awful. And I'm really glad to hear that people really liked it. Yeah, and, and I mean, you, I, we can go back to many of the other Villeneuve, uh, Villeneuve uh, films that we also love, and they are very, very different. Even as I feel like there is a universe in which, you know, somewhere else in the galaxy, Blade Runner 2049 is actually happening at the same time as this movie. Like, it, it shares sort of a lot of the aesthetic, um, if, if not set thousands of years apart. I can you can say the same thing about enemy and about prisoners yes. and about Sicario like they they tell very different stories with with a a, a very even sort of Denny hand like uh, those those things are they they are all connected he is uh you know he's an auteur filmmaker if if there ever was one for us right now because of just how he sees the frame that's important to know uh, I guess the last thing I like to do is so um, I don't like doing just star ratings, but just I uh, like to then say, OK, well, given each one of you, given your expectations and what you thought about this movie going in, uh, did this movie exceed those expectations, meet those expectations or were it below those expectations? Matthew, I don't know if you've listened to enough uh, episodes here to know that I, if I, there's a movie I know I want to see, I avoid the trailer because I don't oh, awesome. I don't like that. I don't like being spoiled. I don't like sitting in the movie going, well, that scene hasn't happened yet, or I know this is going to happen. So I had no idea. And so when the Thopters showed up, I was blown away with the production design of those, the everything about it. I didn't, I I did know where the story ended generally. So I knew because I'm still all the way through my recent read of the book, but I got to where I needed to. Uh, So I got a sense of the story arc that we were going to be getting. And it, I guess, did it exceed my expectations? I set a high bar for Denny, but he he, I, he delivered what I expect from him, which is a favorite film of mine. And so four and a half stars on, re- on rewatch and after part two may, may be at five because this is just one that is, it is part of me. It is in my soul now. This is a film that I just really connect with because it delivered on, in so many ways of just what I w- had dreamed of hap- hopefully happening with this movie. Matthew? I think I'm going to find it very hard to give it a rating. And it's to give a comparison, uh, I'm very involved in MCU fandoms. And people often ask me to rank my favorite MCU movies. And I always say I can't separate uh, Endgame with uh, Infinity War. Because to me, they're the same movie. It just, and, and you have to just judge them all as one oh, piece. I can help you out with that. And, Infinity War is better. As long as we understand that Steve Rogers is utterly and totally wrong in the movie, but uh, different story. We'll get you on superhero ethics to discuss that. But so I'll say there's a lot of things I really liked about the movie. I just to go on the visual stuff. One thing I I was so blown away by was the way they conveyed just the utter size of the interstellar ships compared to the regular spaceships. And the fact that nothing looks aerodynamic in the slightest because 
they don't really explain spice yet. I don't think this is a spoiler, but like the, the base idea of spice as I remember it is that you get so freaking high on this drug that it's kind of like the, you know, the joke about he's so high he can see through time and space. Well, kind of actually, you know, you hallucinate <laughs> that you're in this other planet and then you are. And I just, that obviously wasn't explained and I'm probably doing a, you're probably gonna get a hundred angry fa- fan emails that I'm not explaining it well. But the way they conveyed that it's just this, like, paper towel roll floating through space. It's not aerodynamic in the slightest because it doesn't have to be. I So I, I did think there was so much about it. The visual was good. I love the way they set up the colonizing colonization idea. I love what they're doing with the religious idea. I hate the, t- the timing of it, but I feel like I'm not really going to be able to, to judge it as a movie until I see the second half. And then I can be like, okay, how'd you pay off those stories? So r- rating of that aside— going in with what your expectations were, is this movie meeting those expectations or is it below them or above them? I'd say, well, I, somehow, I'm, again, maybe because I missed the trailers, I didn't know it was part one. So I expected to see the whole story. So it <laughs> failed entirely on that regard. <laughs> and I think, again, I think just, I thought I thought the first 90 minutes were some of the best filmmaking I've seen and I thought the last 45 were just god-awful. Um, and so it, it's kind of hard to say. And I feel like the... It, 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 I was hoping it was going to be something I would enjoy a lot more, but I also think that once I see the second one, if they make it, that may fundamentally change my understanding of this half. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I find a lot of the ways that, uh, Matthew, I, I, I agree with you as well. So for me, the movie met my expectations um, only insofar as I saw the trailer and I thought, hey, this looks visually beautiful and amazing, and the movie definitely delivered on that. It was definitely very beautiful and amazing. Amazing. What my takeaway problem with it is, and why from a star rating standpoint, I would only give it the, you know two and a half stars, is I think that it visually is great. I think the story was interesting enough to keep me going along, but part one, just that just that kind of killed it for me. And that it really made it where I, I really always felt as if I'm watching something that is setting up something. Like, like I'm watching the setup for the movie that is actually going to be the story. And, and that all, and, and I just, I just couldn't, I, could, I guess I couldn't get past that feeling of this is an incomplete thing and a thing that relies on me knowing something outside of the movie itself. So therefore, if I'm judging just this movie on its own and thought, okay, well, let's say they made this movie, we were done, and I'm not, there is no Dune 2. There's nothing. This is the movie. How do I feel about what I just saw? And I'm looking at it going like, well, I didn't really see anything. Nothing happened. And that's what I saw. I think I agree with you there. So, Pete? Oh, that's such a shame. Um, it, it makes me sad. And uh, also, it makes me grateful that I have the baggage of the rest of the story because, um, you know, I, what, what you are demonstrating for me is that that is that, that it to some degree, fandom here counts toward the experience of this, uh, I this think movie. to a great degree. And and so I, I I value that. To me, I think this was a gorgeous just exercise in filmmaking. I think many of the performances I, we haven't we we talked about sort of the lack of the Baron in this movie. But let us not leave this conversation without at least shouting out you know eight hours of makeup chair time for Stellan Skarsgård uh, every day when he was on set because his you know just commitment to you know doing practical. Uh, makeup for the Baron, I think, is a testament to his craft. I think he was great. I wanted to see more of him, and that's, I guess, a good sign. 
I have to jump in there, but this will be a free plug for next real stuff. As someone who's doing the Marvel movie Minute yeah. right now of Thor, I'm spending so much time talking about Stellan Skarsgård playing his character in Thor as this very sweet, lovable. Uh, his acting just blew me away. Yes. It's so, so different. Sorry, Pete, to interrupt. No, no, no. Hey, worthy. go check that out on Marvel Movie Minute. Yeah. Become a member. <laughs> no, go on. <laughs> a worthy plug. Uh, I, I feel like he was just great. And the fact that this movie gave so many stars that we see in other much grander, bigger uh, you know, much more sort of flashy, talky kind of space battle movies, Josh Brolin and, uh, you know, David Dalsmalkian and Dave Batista. Like, I loved that this movie gave them a chance to slow down and to to be, you know, thoughtful warriors. And I really enjoyed their performances. To me, this exceeded my expectations. I found out very late that it was a part one, part two. That did not detract me from just really enjoying my experience with this movie, even as a cinematic meditation. It is a beautiful piece of work, and I cannot wait for number two. Uh, I am a I'm a hard five and a hard beating heart on this movie. If only to bring your ratings up. <laughs> <laughs> on, on and on average, you will, and I know that I will see it again. <laughs> I will probably see this again just so I can remember it for part two because part two yeah. looks like if they're just filming it now, that means we should expect to see it in twenty twenty five. Something right? like that, because like, uh, like you know, long, uh, way too long yeah. from now. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, thank you, uh, thank you all very much for uh, jo- joining me uh, to talk tonight about Dune. Have a great evening uh matthew thank you so much it's been really a really great pleasure to be here have a good night steve as always hondo pete i'm still here and i decided i'm gonna keep talking about dune after you all leave so have a good night everybody (laughs) i got more to say i'm just gonna be hanging out by myself all right well um uh, don't forget to join our online community with fellow movie lovers uh learn more at the slash discord and again if you're not already a member please consider supporting this show to learn more visit the forward slash membership and, and don't forget to do the stuff that you're supposed to do with your podcasts rate them review them subscribe and of course listen but perhaps the most important thing to do is share please let any movie lovers you know about this show. Uh, please, the best way to have more people listen to the show is you. Thank you very much. And coming up next month, we will be talking about the Eternals. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe, but the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. How long do we have? Seven days. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos or any war or all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who?
need to find the others. I haven't seen some of them for centuries. Hi. Hello. This is what the end of the world looks like. At least we have front row seats. You know what's never saved the planet? Your sarcasm. loved these people since the day we arrived when you love something you protect it you can't protect Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. 